You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. I don't have a whole bunch of time today, but I think I've got enough time to record a quick episode of the podcast before I leave for Casper, Wyoming. I leave out today, I'm hoping to leave about noon, and go up for GC training, gas chromatograph training in Casper, Wyoming. Training is on the ABB brand of GCs, and it'll last Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I initially thought it was going to be Friday as well, but looks like it's just Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday as I look at the itinerary again. But in the meantime, I've got Jude on my mind. And when I say that, I mean I've got the book of Jude in the New Testament. We've been going through it at church the past two Sundays. And there's some interesting stuff in here. And since it's on my mind and since we've been going through it, I'd like to talk about it. It's on my mind, and part of the way that I process information is being able to talk about it. If I can't talk about it, then I don't know that I really know all that much about it or understand it very well. And sometimes in the process of talking through something, I understand it better. So for my sake and for your sake, we're going to talk through the book of Jude a little bit, and we'll make some references and uh, unpack a couple of things. I don't mean at all for this to come across as a sermon, because uh, not because there's anything wrong with sermons, but because it's not the intent. The intent is to metabolize the information. The intent is to meditate on the Word. And if you're listening to this and you're not a church attender and you don't listen to sermons, then maybe, just maybe, this helps you to get into God's Word. God's Word is a light to our paths, a lamp unto our feet, something like that. I might have the order reversed, but the general idea is the same. Someone who is a bit of a neatnik about things being precisely the way that they are written in their translation of the scriptures might be concerned or object at that point that I just said a a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. But really it's the idea. It is the meaning of the message that is supposed to be conveyed, and I think not one jot or tittle will pass away until all has been fulfilled, but we don't uh, have scruples about people reading these texts in their native tongue anymore. That was a point of contention for the Protestant Reformation, but we're not reading that passage in Greek, most of us, unless you are a student of Greek, and some people are, maybe even some of the listeners to this podcast are, In fact, I know at least one who is, matter of fact. But those of us who are like me don't know the Greek necessarily unless they've done some studying and have been told by somebody else who knows the Greek. People like me are reading it in English. And my translation of choice happens to be the English Standard Version. I was told when I took Old Testament literature and Spiritual Formations from Professor Thigpen at Cedarville University that the ESV and the NASB 
are the two most reliable word-for-word translations that we have in English. They're the two latest and best translations that take account of the best and most recent scholarship. And they're the most faithful, the most accurate in conveying word-for-word what the original texts said in the Hebrew and in the Greek. That isn't to say that other translations that approach it more from a thought-for-thought or take some license or uh, do some of the unpacking of what these collections of words meant in the original language. It's not to say that those are not worth something, but personally, I prefer word for word. Let me know what the original words were. Someday, I would love to learn Greek and Hebrew. I think that would be really good. And those who do that because they want to understand the text better, they want to understand God's word better, they want to be able to teach, uh, I admire, I look up to. But For now, we're just going to read the book of Jude. It's one chapter long, and uh, we're going to read it from the English Standard Version. From the top, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in internal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of Cain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So as you can tell, it's not a particularly long passage. It's quite brief, quite succinct, really. And it's a curious thing to imagine sitting with Jude, brother of James, brother of Jesus, as he is writing this. To be a fly on the wall, I think, would be very interesting. Or to see playback footage of him sitting there, pen in hand, or what have you, contemplating, sitting over a blank piece of paper and thinking about his brothers and sisters in the church, thinking about what was going on, thinking about false teachers, thinking about false Christians who were wolves in sheep's clothing. What were his feelings as he wrote this? And I don't, I don't want to dwell too much on what his feelings were because Obviously, feelings are not, first and foremost, the point of this passage, and yet there is a sentiment being conveyed here, a sentiment of love for God, love for the truth, love for those who are in Christ, compassion on those who are being led astray and being confused, being destabilized in their faith. Jude loves those people and he's concerned for them, and he wants to help them. And so he's at this fork in the road as he sits down to begin writing. And on the one hand, he could, as he says, write about our common salvation. And he wants to. He was eager to. He was planning on it. This reminds me of so many times that I have sat down to write or to record a podcast where I thought it would be great to cover X, Y, and Z. And when it comes to it, and I have the moment, and I have the opportunity, it doesn't go. It won't work. I can't do it because something else needs to be talked about first. I'd really love to talk about our common salvation, but first of all, we've got some family business we need to attend to here. As you read on, it's clear that fake Christians snuck into the church for whatever reason in their own minds and they want to pervert the doctrine and practice of the church. They want to pollute this good thing that God is doing which will not be subverted. It will not fail because it's God that upholds it. Now Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ but it is Christ who seals us. It ensures that 
we are restored to God. Nobody can take us away from God if Christ has sealed us. If it is God who saves us in Christ, then we're saved. But in the meantime, it is not good that we would be fruitless and unproductive. And there is a kind of suffering that comes with being conflicted. James, another brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, writes in the book of James, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. For the man who doubts is as a wave of the sea. Double-minded. If you doubt that God can give you wisdom, that he will give you wisdom when you ask for it, you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. And so, in a similar vein, Jude is writing because he sees that there is doubt that is creeping in. Hath God said, as the serpent asks Eve in the garden, did God really say not to eat of any tree in the garden, the fruit of any tree? Did he really say that? Check your memory. What did he actually say? Satan was the first lawyer, I'm pretty well convinced. The first prosecuting attorney. But God was supposed to be on trial. And Eve was asked to play the jury and to come to her own verdict. Jude writes about these false teachers and these false Christians who, he says in verse 4, have crept in unnoticed. In other words... They snuck in while you weren't paying attention, while you weren't looking. And some people lack discernment. A lot of people lack discernment. It's always been the case. That was the case with regards to Jude's audience. And yet he's very compassionate and merciful towards those who lack discernment. Now he knows Jesus. And in fact, when you read through the Gospels, you see that Jude and James, Jesus' mother and his brothers, they come at one point and they're going to try and get Jesus out of there because he's kind of embarrassing the family a little bit. I don't think Mary was so much going to get him out of there, but they wanted to see him. And his brothers didn't seem like they really believed he was who he was claiming he was. And he claimed very clearly that he was the Son of God. And yet, what does Jesus say when he's told his mother and his brothers are there to see him? He says, who are my mother? And my brothers, they that do the will of my Father in heaven. Ouch, there's a rebuke. You guys don't believe in me, and you're not doing the Father's will with regards to me. I have work to do. I'm busy right now. Jesus also says at one point that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. That would conceivably include among his own half-brothers, his own family. And yet, Jesus is arrested, tried on false charges, beaten, crucified, dies, is buried, and he raises from the dead. And we have a lot of testimony that he raised from the dead and he was seen in the flesh before he ascended back into heaven. And so Jude, by the time he writes the book of Jude, has a major change of heart with regards to Jesus to the point that he introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. 
He doesn't introduce himself as a brother of Jesus, although he could. James introduces himself as a brother of Jesus, and so maybe they had a little bit less making up to do for things that had been said and done that were hurtful or scoffing. It's funny, if Jude and James both rejected Jesus initially and did not believe in him, if Jesus was without honor in his own home, much less his own hometown, it's interesting that when Jude writes something that we have preserved as a book in our New Testament, he writes about scoffers. He writes about those who are trying to pervert the grace of our God to deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. What a change of heart that reveals. He spends one chapter, has one chapter. He's got a limited amount of time and space here before he realized that's enough. That's all I'm supposed to say. I should say no more. And he chooses to talk about a lot of biblical history with regards to people not knowing their place. And stepping out of line and trying to grab for authority that doesn't rightfully belong to them. They might rightfully own and possess some authority, but they try to get more authority by taking away authority from someone else that God has given authority to. So Korah is mentioned as someone who had tried to take authority away from Moses and Aaron. The angels who were given authority, they weren't powerless. Even when they fell, still had authority, which God had not completely revoked, which is a puzzle, which is an interesting mystery that we get just teased here and we won't know the full story of until the kingdom come. But the angels have authority that's been given to them by God, but it's not enough and they want more authority. And so they rebel against God, Lucifer leading the conspiracy wants to ascend to the Most High and have his throne above the Most High, him and his angels at war with Michael, the archangel, and his angels that are loyal to God, the Most High, have war. And Lucifer and his angels are thrown out. They lose. They lose that war, and they are cast out of heaven. And if you fast forward to Moses, there is a dispute about the body of Moses, and Satan wants it. And Michael, even having authority, recognizes that Satan still has authority from God. It doesn't supersede God's authority, but he still retains, for God's good pleasure, some of the authority, the original power that God had given him when he made him. So when they get into a dispute, Michael even doesn't try to grab authority that doesn't belong to him. You could see a potential for temptation on the part of Michael, the archangel, if he were to try and presume an authority over Lucifer that he doesn't have, that actually belongs to the Most High. And so he knows his place, and he says, the Lord rebuke you. And it's interesting that Jude contrasts Michael even saying the Lord rebuke you to Satan he contrasts that with these certain people from verse 4 who creep in unnoticed. 
ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. It reminds me of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about and talks about as cheap grace. Cheap grace is I live like the devil all week and I expect absolution. I'm entitled to absolution and I live in a contemptuous way towards the grace of God. I live like the devil and I'm just banking on grace. And if somebody confronts me on my bad behavior, my bad attitude, my wickedness, I fall back on cheap grace. Grace, grace, grace. You can't touch me. No tag backs. Grace, grace, grace. Pour grace on it. If you pour grace on it, you don't have to confront that bad behavior. You don't have to be confronted by bad behavior. You can live as if we should sin, that grace might abound all the more. And yet Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, God forbid. Shall we sin that grace might abound all the more? God forbid. But he gives more grace, meaning if you're anxious about whether or not your salvation is assured because wretched man that you are, the thing that you would do, you do not do. The thing that you would not do, that is the very thing that you do. That is where being reminded of grace is critical, where you're working out your salvation in fear and trembling, not when you're these people, these false teachers that Jude is talking about. They are, and I quote, hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Joe Messer, who is heading up our small group at church, texted out. We ended up having to cancel small group men meeting this past Tuesday because a number of families were under the weather. One of us had to work. But Joe texted the group and said, I'd love it if sometime this week you guys could text a little something from what we read in Jude this past Sunday. And I thought about it all week, and then he finally texted on Saturday, I think it was, maybe Friday, the end of the week, and he pitched in what he had reflected on that passage in light of his own circumstances, his own life how he was thinking he needed to apply that passage. And so I'm thinking about it, and I realized that I look at this very much through the lens of other things I've been reading here lately. And you have to be careful with that, because sometimes the things that you're reading, you get so captivated by that you forget to distinguish them from what is absolutely 100% infallibly indisputably true. Yes, this is a good argument. It's a clever argument. Maybe it's a convenient argument, but is it true? Is it true the way that God's word is true? Maybe it's worthwhile. We should factor it in, but I need to keep God's word as the ultimate authority for life and doctrine. And then this other thing is a supplement to my understanding, maybe, of how best to live out my calling. So I'm reading a number of books here lately, one of them being Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. And in Christianity and Liberalism, the main topic is 
As timely in our day as any could be, I think, Machen rebukes liberal theology. And what it really boils down to is rationalizing a much lower view of God and a much higher view of man, putting man in the position of judge over God. All of this business that was all the rage in the 19th century, it uh, had a lot of um, driving from German scholars, German philosophers, German theologians, to look for the historical Jesus and to think of Jesus first and foremost in historical terms. He was a man. And maybe no more. This trend in rationalism to reject anything supernatural. And by supernatural, we should think anything higher than man, anything outside of our understanding, because we've got it twisted and our understanding has become supreme. Our experience is the most important thing. We are the judge of the universe. Well, that sounds an awful lot like the same business that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven with a third of the heavenly host. I will ascend to the most high and set my throne above the most high. That is some dangerous territory, and it's proven toxic for the church as the church becomes a social gathering. We're looking for the historical Jesus, and we're going to make history ourselves, but not in a good way. It's going to be much more like Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed by fire. God himself destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot, whose righteous soul was vexed daily, we read in the text, we read in the scriptures, is delivered. His wife doesn't make it. She turns back longingly because she loves Sodom more than she loves God's salvation. And there's a kind of accusation on her part, on her looking back, an accusation against God, if you think about it, as if God is not just, if he destroys the city which is ripe for judgment, whose sins have found it out. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed because they're completely and totally and utterly and irredeemably depraved, pursuing a natural desire, indulging in sexual immorality. They serve as an example. But the ungodly don't like that. And the liberal theology has, just like it has searched for the historical Jesus, it has trotted out no end of books and documentaries trying to rationalize what might have happened in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. How can we make this into allegory? How can we make this into a non-literal story of a city of real people being destroyed supernaturally by a holy and righteous God who, if he did that, will also judge our nation, our state, our city our household, us. We don't want in our day and age to be accountable. We don't want to be subject. So we are in rebellion. We're trying to take something away from the scriptures and the writers of the scriptures that does not rightfully belong to us. We may have some authority, but even what little we have will be taken away from us and given to someone else if we're perverting the gospel to flatter the sins of people who we think by showing favoritism to 
we can get some kind of a reward in the here and now. Well, you will get a reward. You will reap what you sow. You will get something sooner than you realize. But the reward for your dirty deeds, for your perversion of God's grace, your reward is going to be the same as that which Sodom and Gomorrah enjoyed, which Korah enjoyed. It's funny, and not funny in a ha-ha way, but a funny in a interesting sort of a way, that Jude here gives credit for the delivery of the people of Israel from bondage out of Egypt to Jesus. Isn't that something? Jesus delivered the people out of Egypt. And yet, as he points out, he saved people and afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So God's under no obligation to indulge your fantasy that you are a Christian if you don't believe Christian doctrine, you don't believe the gospel, you hear these words of Jesus, and like a foolish man, you walk away from them, you don't build your life on the rock, you build your life on the sand. At a certain point, the storm comes. And what becomes of your house when it comes, when it's not founded on anything stable, it's founded on shifting sands of your feelings, of the feelings of those around you, of what seems good to you in your own eyes, of the mob mentality of cancel culture. I'm just going to do and not do whatever cancel culture is telling me I can do and not do today. Grace, grace. I'm just going to go with the flow and I'm going to say whatever they want me to say. I'm going to do whatever they want me to do because grace, that's not grace you're talking about. And grace isn't on your terms. It's on God's terms. It is by grace through faith you've been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. But lawlessness is firmly and categorically rebuked in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Grace doesn't come on the scene and then give license for living according to the flesh, indulging in sexual immorality, perverting the truth. Grace is not just something that we get to write ourselves a blank check from. If you really believe, show your faith by your works, as James, the brother of Jesus says. Show, your, show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. That isn't to say my works are what saves me. God's grace saves me by grace through faith, not of works. But if my faith is genuine and God's grace is present in my heart, in my soul, in my mind, in my life, the works will be there as well. Good fruit is not gathered from a bad tree. Bad fruit is not gathered from a good tree. You judge, according to Jesus, the tree by its fruits. Fruits here being work. How is your life? Are you faithless, treacherous, self-indulgent? You show up shamelessly when there is something that will benefit you. You eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. You mooch. You're lazy. You don't serve anybody but yourself. You don't love God. You don't love those around you. That's a very dangerous place to be. And thankfully, God can save us from ourselves because our end is destruction when we think that we are the center of our own universe. 
when we presume authority that does not rightfully belong to us, when we speak out of turn. An interesting thing, and I'll wrap up after this, there's this little bit in here, and I'd love to do a whole podcast episode about dreams, talking about dreams. What did Freud say about dreams? What did Ebenezer Scrooge say about dreams? What does the Bible say about dreams? But there's this interesting passage verse in here. It says that we're to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We read down in verse 8. In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Relying on their dreams. Much could be made of this. I don't think we should make too much of it to where we say that dreams never have significance. They never have meaning. As soon as somebody says they've had a dream and it might be from the Lord, we immediately associate them with Jude. We tar and feather them and ride them out of town on a rail. I don't think that that is correct. I don't believe that. But on the flip side, someone whose life, whose conduct, their interaction with other people, their treatment of the truth of God's word is treacherous, self-serving. If someone like that says, God spoke to me in a dream, weak-minded people have a tendency to be afraid of that person, to say, well, maybe they're allowed to get away with all of this stuff because God spoke to them in a dream. They have this position of authority now. You don't get authority from dreams. You don't even really get authority from the scriptures. Authority comes from God, according to the scriptures. We learn about authority in the scriptures. We learn about what's true in the scriptures. But we read in Romans 13, we're to subject ourselves to the governing authorities, for no authority exists except that which has been instituted by God. In other words, God gives authority, but Jesus says, by your fruits you will know them. In other words, if you're looking at the life of somebody who says, I've just had this dream, and their life doesn't match up with what the scriptures say is God's desire for us to live like, and they have no apparent concern about that. They'd rather talk with you about their prophetic dream and their prophetic vision. And they were driving to the coffee shop the other day. And the Lord spoke to them. We are told to test the spirits to see whether they be from God or not. We're told of the Bereans who tested daily what Paul and Barnabas were preaching to them about Jesus. They tested daily by searching the scriptures to see whether these things were so. And wouldn't you know it, searching the scriptures daily, being Bereans about something, does not mean that you reject anything you're not familiar with right off the bat. It doesn't mean you reject it out of hand. It doesn't mean you stone Paul and Barnabas as they come to your town preaching Jesus, Christ crucified, the gospel. You don't reject it out of hand you search the scriptures daily. And what do they find when they search the scriptures daily? They found that these things were so. Testing the spirits does not mean you say that anything spiritual is from Satan and is evil and corrupt and no good and satanic or 
a bit of undigested potato, as Ebenezer Scrooge says of the ghost of Marley, who comes to visit him, to warn him that he's going to be visited by three spirits. Testing the spirits does not mean that you claim somebody is a false teacher if they say that they had a dream and they're not sure what it means. Again, I don't have enough time to get into it. In this episode, I'd like to do an episode coming up talking about dreams, but I named one of my sons Daniel Joseph in part because I had some really bad work experiences in which people were abusive and mistreated me and were slanderous and deceitful and treacherous and and all that. And I know at least in several of those, part of the reason that they were is because I was trying to be faithful to God. I was trying to live a godly life before God, having a good conscience and a good testimony. And they hated me for it because it was making them, by contrast, look corrupt, which they were. Another reason why I named my son Daniel Joseph has less to do with God being faithful even when people are treacherous, even when your own brothers sell you into slavery and your master's wife falsely accuses you of attempted rape. There's more to it than an angel being sent to shut the mouths of the lions. Daniel and Joseph both interpreted dreams and they, in humility, give credit to God as they are interpreting dreams. When it is credited to them, this power and this ability, and there's a danger of them taking glory, taking something that doesn't rightfully belong to them, they say that God only can give an interpretation for their dream. And yet, they then share the interpretation which God gave to them for the dream. It's a crazy thing. But that is not what Jude is talking about here. Loudmouthed boasters are not God's people. God's people are not loudmouthed boasters. They're not grumblers. They're not malcontents. Let that be a warning to us all, me especially. I try to analyze a problem, troubleshoot it. Sometimes I cross the line from analyzing and troubleshooting into grumbling, being discontent. There's a lot here. There's a lot here that we can benefit from contemplating, meditating on. I've really appreciated Paul Pavlik's going through the book of Jude. I think it's timely. I think it's really good. Um, check out Machen's Christianity and Liberalism once again. Check out some of you community church on YouTube and the sermons here from yesterday, April 17th. No, I'm sorry, April 18th and the previous week, which would have been, what, April 11th? Is that right? Yes. Check those sermons out. But for right now, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you for listening. As always, if you have any additional thoughts, challenges, corrections, I said something out of turn, let me know. Reach out. But until next time, probably later this week or next week on account of training, thanks for listening and God bless. 
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.